in Australia alone, there's like a thousand kids born every day, more actually. So, I mean, we were really looking at that. Like, it's just a constantly replenished market. There are fart book authors who are multi-millionaires, quite literally. You get an email like a day later, like, oh, where's my parcel? My parcel's lost. We're like, holy shit, your parcel hasn't even left the warehouse yet. Calm down, <laughs> check your tracking number. Whoa. Welcome to Add to Cart, the podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of e-commerce. Every month, Nathan Bush from 12 High and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency, eSuite. Have you ever read a kid's book and thought, yeah, I reckon I could probably write a better one than that? Well, that's exactly what today's guest did. Stu French is a digital transformation executive who consults to corporates and has previously worked at organizations such as Telstra, Vocus, and AGL. Last year, however, he and his wife, Tegan, took what seems to be a left-hand turn and started a kid's book business called Ethical. They're beautifully designed books with stories which help kids make the world a better place. In this chat, Stu discusses the link between his corporate life and his career as a kid's author and publisher. There is a link, trust me. He also tells us about the fulfillment model he set up to help distribute into the US, and he shares why he doesn't see Amazon as a competitor, but a partner to his book business. So let's get into it. Thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet, here's our conversation with Stu French from Ethical. Stu French, welcome to Add to Card. Thank you, Nathan. Good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. I love your story and I can't wait to um, get into it today. Now, imagine that we are hiking somewhere in the Tasmanian wilderness and, you know, we, we were hiking along together and I turned to you and I go, Stu, what do you do? How do you explain what you do? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I normally have an elevator pitch for most things, but um, when I get asked what I do at a family barbecue, I probably don't have an elevator pitch. Um, I, I just tend to say it's not very interesting and, and that normally shuts the conversation down. But, I mean, of course, that's a, a bit of a lie. I mean, I probably have a, a pretty interesting and, and unique career. Um, so, look, I uh, I have probably like three core components to, to what I do. Um, obviously, I, I, I have a startup um, publishing children's books, pure online, although we are expanding into physical distribution, which I can talk to a little bit today. Um, so that's kind of um, one large part of it. Um, I also have, um, I, I guess, a corporate career, um, you would say, which also is actually my own business. I, I consult into a lot of enterprise in Australia, uh, currently to, to Vestant, the big um, cloud and, and digital transformation organisation, mainly around digital transformation, commercial strategy, product strategy. Uh, so that's um, a, an area of a, a lot of domain expertise of, of mine. So that's kind of another part of my role. And then um, also I, uh, I write children's books too um, and then publish them through the, uh, the ethical brand in my own startup. So kind of three, three trenches. They're all interconnected. Um, they're all about kind of content and technology um, and customer experience. So there, there is a level of overlap. Um, but I kind of tend to run them as, as very separate entities ultimately. You know what I love there? You were able to form a link between being a digital transformation executive to a children's author. 
<laughs> yes, it's it, it's a little bit random. I mean, pro- probably the only uh, level of sort of continuity, I, I guess, to my career journey. I, I did study writing at uni. I studied creative writing and, and journalism. I, I intended to originally to be a publicist, actually, um, and and I, I did start in the, the communications domain. Um, but frankly, I, I decided I wasn't going to make enough money. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to to travel much, and a big part of my life is travel. So I sort of diverged um, across into the technology space um, as that was ramping up and, and so began a, a career doing more technically-led stuff, even though uh, as a technologist I, I'm not um, formally trained. I guess I've, I've developed a lot of technology skills over the last kind of 15 years, uh, so I, I've become quite technically adept, um, even though it's, it's not really my, uh, my area of formal training. Yeah, great. And it's been fascinating because I came across uh, yourself and Ethical when um, I was doing some research around the Amazon um, programs and some of those startup programs and came across your story, came across the Ethical story, which is E-T-H-I-C-O-O-L for anyone listening along. Um, and I kind of worked backwards here and I was like, oh, cool, she's a, a children's author. Oh, they're going into publishing, working back all the way back to seeing that you've been a digital digital executive at places like Telstra, um, which has been, which was just blew my mind. So for those of us who are in corporate jobs and have always dreamed about writing children's books and <laughs> I've read enough of them in my life to, and you always have that little thought and you go, how hard can it be to write a children's book? How hard is it to write a children's book? Um, this is probably where I, I think a lot of people listening might laugh. Um, and it, it, it's actually very easy. I mean, I, uh, it, I, I literally, and, and this not to kind of do a disservice to, to a lot of authors around the world, but I think literally most books I have written, um, I've done them in under an hour. Um, I've had a first draft out in under an hour. I mean, and, and obviously, like, you can spend a lot of time refining them actively thereafter. But really, it's, it's not very hard. You're talking about a 500 to 1,000 word piece of text. I mean, and if you have kind of a, a basic head for how to package information to your audience, um, which I, I think comes from having kids, frankly, um, or working in, in a UX domain or a CX domain where you need to understand your audience. Um, I mean, it, it's fairly easy to, to enter and, and just do it and to, and to do it quite convincingly. Frankly, to be blunt too, I, I think the, the bar of most children's literature is, is relatively low. I mean, some of the best-selling books, like if you think about them, I won't name names because um, that would be harsh, but a lot of the books that have sold in the tens of millions of, of copies are really not very special. I mean, that they have like a catchy jingle that they use or like they might explore a theme that is very engaging or endearing for children or they might focus on something that's topical or timely. But really, like the, the recipe is not particularly hard to access. Um, it, it's just a matter of pulling together all of these elements. And, and obviously, um, the illustrative component and the creative side from a visual standpoint is more challenging and, and more time consuming. Um, but most people aren't doing author illustrator anyway. Um, and, and that's probably a segue into the part of um, children's book production that is hard. Uh, once you've written something, actually getting it to market and turning it into a book, let alone kind of finding a publisher that will do those things for you, uh, that's where there are barriers to entry. And, and it's also one of the the, um, the gaps we were looking to close with launching Ethical to make that process more accessible to people, uh, particularly emerging artists who didn't really have a platform to, to get what they do to market. 
Yeah, absolutely. I also find that if you write a book about farts, is that every auntie, <laughs> uncle, nephew, they gift them to your kids and you end up with a bookshelf of like 10 books that are just about farts. There, there are a lot of fart books. And, and to go back to my point before, perhaps sadly, they do sell really well. There are there are fart book authors who are multi-millionaires, quite literally. So mm. <laughs> hence the recipe is not that hard. <laughs> I see what you're up against. How do you know when <laughs> when you've hit something good? Do you test it on your kids first and see if they respond, or do you just innately? Yeah, yeah, we we, we, we do. I mean, I, I think now um, having kind of been around it um, in a lot of detail, albeit in a fairly compressed time frame, but I, I think I've I've built a pretty good head for for what will and won't work i mean there's always some exceptions of stuff that you read it you're like yeah i think that's very good uh, but then you might test it with a different audience and, and they love it i mean there's a lot of kind of subjectivity uh, i think to, to writing and, and to um, consuming texts but yeah generally you, you get a pretty good head for it straight away i, I think like we're also in, in terms of ethical we're also trying to break out of that standard mold i mean whilst the books need to have sort of that time-honored appeal and resonance with children we're also trying to explore themes that are perhaps a little more progressive but in some cases even contentious um, because we think it's important to explore that stuff with kids and that's sort of where the play on words ethical comes from we're trying to make these kind of ethical themes accessible and cool um, for for kids and, and that's been quite well well received actually um, by customers which has, has been really really nice yeah brilliant if you go onto your website you can definitely see the point of difference for ethical books can you tell us about the moment uh, and that you've started this with your wife tegan can you tell us about the moment that you went, I think this is a really good idea, we, we can start ethical? How did it come about? We've been, yeah, that's um, that's an interesting topic. I mean, we, we've been playing around with doing some sort of e-com startup for like years um, and I'd even kind of done a few proof, proof of concepts for, for various different platforms um, alongside kind of working with a bunch of friends who've now also um, developed successful channels with various different kind of products online. So I, I'd sort of been across it and always wanted to do something myself. I, I guess I'd not focused on it sufficiently because I was looking at my kind of own day job um, in years past. Um, but also I didn't necessarily think I had found a product that was quite the right fit. The reason we, we landed on kids' books was um, there's not actually a huge presence for kids' books online outside of, like, obviously you've got Amazon and you've got Booktopia and there's kind of the big kind of monoliths that have really dominated the space. They don't focus so aggressively on children's books. They typically do kind of novels and nonfiction. Um, so there's a bit of a, a room and opportunity in, in the market there. Um, but also, I mean, all the other things you need to think about with starting an e-commerce business around um, warehousing and, and pick and pack and postage. I mean, books are very easy to store. They're very easy to ship. Um, they're non-perishable, so you can sit them in a warehouse for quite literally decades. And provided it is dry and, and dust-free, they will last so the, the product has a very long lifespan. It's also an evergreen market. I mean, kids are being born all the time, so you don't need to worry about things like seasonality um, and, and that sort of stuff. So these are all the things that kind of fed into picking um, this as a, a vertical. And then compounding that, um, we looked at, and when I really kind of dug into the, the commercial profile of something like this, looking at other publishers, they're not vertically integrated. So, I mean, they might deal with authors and they might produce the work, but then to actually get that work to market is a value chain where there are kind of three to four different parties involved and obviously that's eroding the margin. So we looked at um, kind of a, a few mock P&Ls for this 
and we really ascertain that um, if we go direct to market, both B2B and B2C, and that is a vertically integrated business model where we handle kind of everything on the value chain, it is really high gross margin, like kind of 90, 95%, um, if not more in, in some cases, because the production cost is, is relatively low. So that's left us a lot of room to, to focus on marketing and branding investments early, uh, which is kind of the phase we, we're in at the moment, that really early awareness and, and growth phase. What's that? You've had all summer to read Shopify's Future of E-Commerce report and you haven't yet? And what's that? You missed the webinar with Shopify Plus's head of marketing, Robin Marchant, and product marketing lead, Anthony Kentris. Well, don't worry. We've got you covered. The webinar and the report is available on demand now, so you can access both at any time that you want. Head over to shopifyplus.live forward slash foc dash APAC. That's shopifyplus.live forward slash foc dash APAC to get Shopify's future of e-commerce report and webinar today or, you know, before next summer at least. We'll put the link in the show notes for you as well. How did you determine that Amazon wasn't a huge barrier to entry there? Because if most people would look at it and go, I'm going to start a book company that's going to be online, you would go, oh, shit, there's this player called Amazon that we might need to be careful of. <laughs> what made you determine that there was a gap in the market that Amazon hadn't touched? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, geography was a bit of a part of that. So definitely Amazon doesn't have as strong a presence in Australia as obviously they would like to. I mean, you, you've got players like Kogan who've really kind of dominated that online retail space um, and, and grown very quickly. I mean, they're obviously not really in books, but Amazon, like, I mean, it, it will progressively grow more and more here. And, and obviously there's a huge amount of capital behind that business to facilitate that. Uh, but certainly in Australia and New Zealand, Amazon isn't what it is in the U.S., um, so that was definitely a thing. I'm saying that we we have recently launched into the US. We're getting pretty good traction in that market. Um, and actually, we'll probably also parallel sell our books on Amazon in the US um, in the near future as well. And, and I guess we also looked at this to that end around, I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. We're, we're completely not adverse to having our product on that channel. And, and certainly we have that in Australia already. It's only kind of a minority channel to market for us. Uh, but it's one that if it's scaled, um, it, it's still commercially viable. And, and that's kind of what it came down to. I mean, if we ended up having Amazon as a, a main channel to market, even supplemented by distribution and our own Shopify platform, then that would be fine. And all of those were, were viable options. I think um, if, if you launch a business and you don't explore all of these scenarios and do your due diligence, that's when you potentially kind of run into issues. And, and we were we were pretty pretty hygienic around how we went through that process and even continue to now. We, we're really kind of focused on, on the commercial detail behind everything. Was there any particular commercial metric that you looked at more than others that would really influence the viability of this business? Yeah, probably the, the big one was just like opportunity size and, and size of market. So, um, I mean, even in Australia alone, there's like a thousand kids born every day, more actually. I mean, we were really looking at that like it's just a constantly replenished market. Um, I mean, probably one of the other things we, we looked at was return business as a key indicator. I think the cost of selling online, particularly um, on Facebook and Google, is really high now. Um, so, if you have a low average order value like we do um, with relatively cheap products often there's a barrier to entry with um, that acquisition cost using like your traditional kind of social and, and search marketing channels so that was definitely something we we looked at 
And that sort of forms part of our thinking the whole time. I mean, actually, one of the, the problems to, to kind of take it down a different angle that we have, because that average order value is so low, we're kind of forced into running this vertically integrated model anyway. The minute we introduce like other people into our value chain instantly, we'd have a business that wouldn't be making much of any money, um, actually. So um, the way we've shaped the business um, is taking um, into account the fact that it's a cheap product and it is absolutely a, a volume gain. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that's a really great rational explanation of how you've set up the business. And, and I think you've given us some great insights there in your thinking and how your your previous and your, and your current career as a consultant kind of shapes what's been formed into ethical. Ethical also has some really strong positions around helping kids create a better place or create a better world, whether that be environmental, whether it be ethically. Can you tell us about that side of the business as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, we we, we definitely, um, in, in setting out um, to kind of establish this, I mean, obviously we, we had a focus on building like a, a sustainable business that would scale and something that we could kind of focus on um, and even kind of keep as a, a sideline that wouldn't need a lot of focus in the long term. I mean, we, we wanted to an extent a, a passive revenue stream, but at the same time, we, we didn't always kind of want something that was just all about making money, I, I think. And, and certainly one of the things I've had a lot of exposure to in my corporate life is like businesses that just make money and make money and make money and and they all through their marketing teams are trying to project to customers that they're giving back and that they care but they absolutely do not care i mean that frankly that the minute a company goes public in particular um, and it's all about delivering value to the shareholder that overrides so many ethically based or sustainably based decisions that that organization would probably make differently um, if they weren't in the, the position they were in so i mean being exposed to that day in day out definitely kind of created a, a view in my own mind that like if, if i were to create something and if it were to become big i would always want to give back so we we sort of look looking at doing that or are doing that in, in two ways. One, through kind of instilling the right values in, in children, and, and that's kind of really important to us in, in all the products. Um, insofar as we, we literally even interview our authors before they get to publish with us, if there's not a values alignment, even if the book is absolutely fantastic, we are just not interested. So that's um, one of the, the key ones. And then I think um, outside of that, like financially too, I mean, we, we partnered with 1% for the planet, uh, which means even if we're losing money, we're still giving 1% of our top line revenue. Um, and, and that's something we, we're committed to doing. Um, and we, we'll, we'll do more of that, I think, in the future. I mean, if, if similar initiatives like 1% launch, I mean, they're, they're things that would interest us and, and things we would pursue um, in light of the fact that we, we're talking about being values oriented in the business. And it's really important to live that, I think. Otherwise, we, we're just like most corporates that say they are when in reality they're not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for anyone who hasn't seen it, we've got titles like your best, some of your best sellers that you got on the website here, Remembering Mother Nature, My Rainforest Classroom, Tom's Tears. I love Tom's Tears because <laughs> it's all about a, a guy who or a boy who didn't want to cry and then finally works out that it's okay for boys to cry. Yeah. There's some really cool messages for kids coming through there, right? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're cool. And, and look, I mean, we, we probably anticipated actually a level of pushback on some of the themes. I mean, and, and there's been a, a bit of that, but nowhere near like we expected. I mean, we, we have a very, very low return rate. I mean, under 0.1% of our product is returned, which is, is pretty unusual for, for e-com actually. And, and that's to go back to some of the kind of KPIs we, we live by. That's another one. I mean, the, the fact that people are keeping the product is a really good sign that it, it fits and, and yeah, it, it's exactly fine of living the way it's positioned on the website, which is important, right? So Brilliant. And how do you pick what you write about? Do you think of a theme and then write or do you just write and then a theme comes out of it? 
yeah, I mean, I, historically, I, I've sort of just sat down and I've I've done stuff. Um, yeah. But now, now that um, we we've got a handful of books on the site and and like a lot of the kind of core themes are really sort of already addressed. Now it's a matter of being a bit more systematic and thinking, hey, what haven't we written about? Um, what's the theme that there might be some interest in? And and typically we'll we'll kind of do some light polling with with some of our customers through social media and and just gauge some kind of responses around, hey, if we wrote a book about this, would there be interest? Uh, so we, we're becoming a, perhaps a little more scientific around that. And, and certainly as we publish more and more, I mean, that will become especially scientific where we'll do a lot more upfront research. But really still, I mean, there's so much we, we haven't yet written about um, that we will write about. I mean, to give a, a couple of examples, we, we're really keen to write a book about money. Um, I mean, there's some kids' books that are written about kind of money and how to save and what that means. But again, we don't really think they appeal to kids. They're very sort of dry and financial and, and that's not cool for kids. We, we want to write something that's actually going to have a level of resonance with them. That's one thing. Religion is another one. I mean, exploring like theology with, with children is, is important. I mean, we, I'm an atheist. I, I respect people that are religious, but I think often there's this tension that comes with people that are atheists or people that follow a religion, and that shouldn't exist, right? I mean, you, you should be able to pursue whichever kind of channel you, you, you do or don't want, and, and we would like to explore that in a children's book, and that would be highly contentious, but we, we need to find a way to, to do it. It's almost, it feels to me like it's almost like feeding kids. You you need to sometimes hide the veggies within like a really interesting yes. design. Perfect, perfect <laughs> analogy. Perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah. And, and then that's kind of what it is. I mean, the, the themes in, in the books are not overt. Um, they're generally within the subtext. They're not very, very deeply buried, but they're, they're buried enough that like if you just read the book to a child, and, and this is part of the, the secret source of what we do, I think, if you read any of our books to children um, and you didn't really stress the themes, they would be a story that would stand up um, on their own without kind of the thematic value. I mean, they kind of have a, a, a really deeper value to them if you get into that subtext and you explore it. They kind of have this um, sort of dual play uh, where it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword. I mean, but you, you don't need to get into the theme that the book is special in its own right. Um, and, and that's yeah. also part of, of ensuring they have a level of appeal. I mean, not everyone wants to read a book to their kids that explores like gender politics and that sort of stuff. They might just want to read a story about a kid getting lost. Um, and, and to use the Tom T- Tom Steers example, it's just a bit of a fun narrative, but you can make it kind of a bit more serious if you so choose. And, and that's really important in the way we've, um, we've positioned the products. And let's be honest, sometimes at 7.30 at night, it's the book that's keeping us between between <laughs> yeah. us and a bottle and a glass or yeah. a bottle of uh, wine. Yeah. So it's, um... Totally, yeah, totally. Sometimes <laughs> books need to serve a purpose of, of putting children to sleep. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Cool. So tell us a little bit about the growth. How many books have you published so much so far and how many authors have you got on board? Um, so we've got um, about 14 books out to market now and that's come from, we've got about five, six authors on the books now um, and a few more in the pipeline. This year is probably less about publishing for us. I mean, the, the first year we wanted to get a level of critical mass. Uh, we kind of want to have like about 20 to 30 products um, on the site um, just to, to try and boost that average order value and, and give people a bit of a browsing experience. I mean, we, we're never going to have hundreds upon hundreds of books. But also, I mean, the other part of this was obviously the more authors we bring in, the more there is to talk about um, and the more diversity we bring into the mix, both in terms of the people themselves, uh, but the way they write and the topics they explore. And again, that has parallels with the principles behind the business. Yeah. 
You do a great job on the website with the limited SKUs that you got a limited titles by bundling and giving people other avenues to buy together. So it looks like you've got a lot more than what you actually do. Yeah, yeah. There's there's, yeah. there's definitely some smoke and mirrors there. And again, yeah, that's that's key. As I've sort of touched on, definitely our big challenge is is that AOV, particularly with Facebook. Yeah, is, is a, a challenging channel for us, but it is a, a majority channel to market where we get really high engagement. Um, so when we sell on Facebook, that acquisition cost is really high, but our conversion rate. Is, is strong so i mean it, it's a cha- channel we'll be in for the long term but yeah having bundles there has allowed us to make it a bit more commercially viable yep makes sense now i see you we touched on before that you are expanding into the u.s and you see the u.s as a viable market i can see on your website that you have warehouses in melbourne city auckland dallas and london mm-hmm. oh london london's coming but yeah that's that's due about may of this year we're just setting up at the moment that's a pretty incredible coverage for still a relatively young company is distribution at the heart of your business would you say that's the core driver yeah we've we've kind of and and we're actually interrogating this in a lot of detail right now i mean when we set this up we were like we are just going to go b2c um we completely want to pollute the traditional model of going through distributors and wholesalers and all of the noise that comes with that but the problem is, and, and this is this is actually flying in the face of some of the early research we did, most people like my age, our age, that are kind of playing in this space aren't actually really buying books online. Uh, not kids' books anyway. The majority buyer is grandparents overwhelmingly. And even like when I kind of did some initial polling around this in my own friendship groups, everyone is obviously a huge consumer um, of e-commerce but they're not really buying books. They're usually gifted by their parents or, or the kids' grandparents and their great-grandparents oh, or true. whatever. So um, this is one of the things. In fact, like prior to setting up this business, I might have bought a couple of books in a store for my kids. Uh, they were either gifted by other people or they just kind of materialised from somewhere um, and I wasn't <laughs> quite sure where. Um, it might have been a Christmas thing from some random auntie or something. So where, where, I'm, where I'm kind of getting to is the opportunity size selling pure online to that demographic is is sizable but it is not massive so in terms of getting the scale we need and, and want or aspire to have with this business distribution is something we are we are definitely i mean we, we've opened a, a distribution channel now um so we are actively doing it and it's it's probably the only way we are going to get like massive scale um at least in the relatively near term i mean the, the way we see it is it's an awareness driver too i mean the, the more books we get to market kind of the more people will be in different houses um and see these books when they're visiting a friend and they might go and buy them online the the way we've set up the model, as I touched on before, even if kind of we are eroding some margin to sell at a heavily reduced price um, through wholesalers or distributors, it is still viable for us, particularly because there's basically no acquisition cost to doing that. We're not paying high um, advertising bills to Facebook or Google or whatever. We'll probably end up, I, I think, I mean, if I if I give my gut feel, we'll probably end up having a business that's probably 60 to 70% distribution and the balance being B2C e-com. If you'd asked me that, like, Two years ago when I was originally preparing for this, I would have totally not given you that answer. And I, I think this talks to the way kind of things happen with businesses. And, and, and you've got to be willing to accept when you were wrong. And that's something like I, I'm kind of not good at. I, I, I'm pretty kind of bullish and I, I do a lot of research and planning into stuff. So when like I've done that research 
and I've been proven wrong. I probably take about a month to accept it. Um, and, and once I've accepted it, I'll, uh, I'll do something about it. And, and the distribution thing is something I've been monitoring um, and it was starting to eat away at me. And, and then through the, the kind of break in inverted commas over Christmas, I was like, stuff it, we're going to do distribution, let's go hard. And, and we've done that. And that's the way I, I, I like to work. I take a bit of convincing, but once I've done it, it's, it's, it's all in. Uh, so we're now all in on, on both channels. Was there a particular moment that made you make that call over that Christmas break? Yeah, probably. I think this goes back to like the time at which we we launched this business too. So we launched just as COVID started to kick off. So there was obviously a natural shift to e-commerce anyway. And some of that elder kind of grandparent demographic that I referenced earlier, who probably weren't even thinking about buying this stuff online, um, began to have to buy it online because bookstores literally weren't open. So we we kind of rode a bit of a wave in in kind of that period of time, which was fantastic for us. It, It launched the business. It launched it really well but certainly like as COVID uh, at least in Australia began to taper off through like that December period and certainly into January we saw some of those people were less uh, likely to convert online our ad performance was tailing off and and that firmed it up for me I mean we're still exploring what that necessarily means I mean there's definitely a period where grandparents are actively buying um, presents through October and November and and I I think e-com in this channel kind of tails off um, seasonally through this period right now uh, but definitely I, I do think we rode a wave in COVID um, and we'll continue to ride it and, and the business is still strong B2C but definitely I, I see there is a real opportunity to, to do distribution as a supporting channel and potentially even in the long term the majority channel. That's really interesting and like it is a beautiful wave that, that incredible timing <laughs> right um, yeah. <laughs> but I can imagine that makes it very hard for you from a customer perspective in that you're not only once removed from your users by parents yeah. buying it but you're twice removed by having grandparents yeah. how do you get a view on what your customer well what your users if the kids how do you get a view over habits and lifetime value when it's so far removed from your end user yeah that's a good question and because that was actually one of the that was one of the things we were looking to address by like being really particular about B2C. So to kind of go down a a slightly different angle, another problem we were looking to solve was like in in traditional publishing, there is no connection to the customer. And that's so important in in particularly selling online. You've got to have that level of understanding. So we thought, right, if, if we're effectively selling direct to readers, we're really going to be in tune with them and we're going to know what they want. Uh, We'll publish books that really align to that. Um, So obviously, yeah, to to your question, I mean, some of that is eroded away um, by adding a kind of layer in the chain. What we have sort of found, though, we we get sufficient engagement uh, both through social and and through reviews and people just randomly emailing us to talk about the books, which happens so often um, that we we actually get enough feedback through anyway uh, that's allowing us to refine what we do. Definitely, it's it's not going to be as strong as going pure beta. To see, but I think there's enough there so that we can continue to refine things effectively going forward. Yeah, that makes sense. So you use a lot of your social media and one-to-one communication to kind of understand what the, the pulse check is around. Yeah, it, exactly. And, and definitely the good old um, kind of nonna down the road is not adverse to giving her opinion, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> usually usually it's good, but when it's not, you, you definitely hear about it. So the, the, the feedback is unfiltered and they've certainly got time to share it. So, I mean, I, I respect that, right? It's, it, it's good. I mean, they, they tell us what they think and, and we, we act on that feedback. It's really important. How do you like your cocktail gift boxes? Shaken? Maybe. Stirred? Perhaps. Broken? Definitely not. 
cocktail gifting company, Cheers Sweetie, were finding that they were regularly coming up against broken items when mailing their gift boxes all over Australia. Not only was it costing them money, but it was a horrible customer experience. Working with our packaging supplier partner, Signet, Cheers Sweetie added an outer protective layer and internal cushioning, all while remaining environmentally friendly. They're now saving over $6,000 a year in broken items. Cheers to that. Visit signet.net.au forward slash blog to find out more. I want to loop back to what we were talking about around international distribution particularly. Tell us about how the moment that you decided to expand into America, I'm assuming based on what you've told us so far, there was always the plan to make this an international business. Yeah. What were some of the first moves that you had to do to take this from Australia and into the American market? Uh, so the first thing was just figuring out like how we were going to ship orders, the whole pick pack and, and warehousing process. We did look at establishing our own physical presence over there, uh, but there was just no point. I mean, it, it also massively increased the risk profile. I mean, we, we were going in unknown. So if we'd spent like an absolute fortune setting up our own facility and hiring staff and had it not worked, I mean, that was just not something we, we wanted to carry. So uh, third-party logistics or 3PL was the only option for us. We did our legwork and, and looked at the few players that were in the U.S., um, it is quite a mature way to operate over there now. There are several really strong 3PLs. Obviously, there's some issues there around cost. I mean, you're, you're paying for warehousing space. You're paying for all of the pick pack. Um, and, and those costs actually do kind of ramp up. I mean, particularly if you're paying like on a per pick basis, which most 3PLs do, um, literally every time they put something into a package, you're paying extra to kind of pull that apart a little bit more for, for the interest sake. We used to put like um, a little insert in every one of our um, our packages that went out and it was just talking a little bit about who we are. It had a coupon code on it. Uh, we were having really good traction with that campaign. It gave people 15% off. Um, but actually, like the additional pick cost to put that in the envelope, once we modelled it out, actually outweighed the benefit we were getting in terms of those return transactions um, because the pick costs really do spiral, particularly once you're at scale. So that's probably an example of like I think how forensic you need to be when you're kind of planning this stuff out. But certainly, I mean, the, the 3PL model was vastly simpler and cheaper than, than setting our own warehouse up. It was also low risk. To that end, we, we also thought, hey, if, if we launch in the US, our product is the same, right? I mean, if, if the US doesn't go well, we'll stick it in a container and we'll ship it down to Australia and, and we'll keep selling here. I mean, we, we will have lost a bit of money, but we'll have tested something and, and the learnings coming out of that testing are, are worth far more than the money we would lose. So, I mean, we, we kind of just went all in and did it. The US is a massively different market to Australia. I had known that just from kind of having some exposure to, to e-com stores that played there through various kind of other points in my career. Um, I knew it was it was very different. It was a lot more mature. It was a lot more kind of aggressive and competitive. All of those things have have proven true, but you can't escape the scale. I mean, 350 million odd people, mm. it, it is a massive market to get into. Um, it's going to be a, a slow burn for us, I think, because we are capitally constrained. I, I don't have millions of dollars to spend on an awareness campaign. Um, and in a market of that size, you would need tens of millions to, to make it work. I mean, it's it, we're exploring getting investment to support that. 
but I'm also particular about kind of diluting my equity um, and, and having other people on board telling me what to do. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. Um, so we are. Uh, That's we're, why, we're, we're, why we become consultants, right? Exactly. I like telling other people what to do. Precisely. <laughs> so yeah, we, we, we're going through that. We're going through that at the moment. I mean, if I, if I found a partner that um, had really strong expertise in that market, awesome. We would sign them up, and um, yeah, we, we're starting conversations now. Um, I mean, I, I do think there is a lot to be said for people that have native experience in a market. There is a lot of value in it. I, I know about the US in principle, but in kind of practice, I know very little beyond what I've sort of learned with my own business really over the last year, um, and, and that is not enough. Uh, so I think if, if people are listening and, and they're looking to do a US expansion, don't think it's going to be kind of this big ticket thing overnight. It is absolutely not. Yes, you, we, we all read about some kind of um, random stories where that does happen, but it's, it's pretty rare. It is a very hard slog. Um, even getting product in there when you don't have a physical presence I mean, I kind of won't labour the point of all the challenges, but another quick example, customs in the US is truly painful. So if you um, if you don't have a physical office there and you're not a, a corporate entity in, in the US, it's close to impossible to get your stock in. Um, it took us six months to get our product into the country um, because we were using a 3PL. We have a manufacturing facility in Shanghai. So, I mean, there's all that kind of paranoia about stuff coming from Asia. Um, and, and this was in the midst of all the political turmoil as well. So it was just a, a country that was in a bit of a state. Um, and it, as I say, it, it took us six months and a lot of money to get the product in and, and really delayed our launch. And these are the things you just don't know until you start. But at the same time, I mean, if you sit back and wait, then you're never going to do it. So, I mean, we, we just like to kind of move and, and get it done and, and we deal with shit on the fly as and when it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that approach. So tell us about how did you select your 3PL in the US? How did you uncover that? Yeah, um, uh, with with a few challenges, I think, because they're, they're all very different in, in the way they're set up. So, um, I mean, I, I could talk at length about this, but in, in a nutshell, um, some 3PLs will pay a lot for warehousing space, but then they will have very low kind of pickback and dispatch costs. So, for example, um, if you have really large products that take up a lot of floor space, you probably wouldn't pick one of those 3PLs because you'd have a massive monthly warehousing bill, even if the dispatch of your products were cheap. Uh, so that's kind of one example. Another example is they have really low warehousing costs, but then the pick pack is really high. And that links back to the example I was going back to before around like the per pick price. So if you have a, a lot of orders that come through that are um, a conglomeration of like four or five products, which is common for us with the book bundles, that can also spiral. We had to do um, a fair bit of kind of modelling to figure out which one was the most viable for us. Actually, I don't know that we've nailed that. Um, I think it's definitely something we, we need to refine a little bit further. But what I would definitely caution people against is just finding a good 3PL that is convincing and you have good rapport with, and, and that's everyone in the US, that they nail the customer service far better than Australia. They all sound like they're going to be amazing to work with, and, and look, they probably are, but that doesn't mean they are the right fit for your business. You've got to actually find one that aligns to your business model. I mean, if, if you have a small product um, that you're shipping in single volumes, then, I mean, there'll be a partner for you. If you have a really large product um, that is heavy and cumbersome to ship, it might be uh, road freight only or whatever. These are all the things you, you need to factor in as you're starting a conversation with them. And look, we probably only did 50% of that. So it, it sort of got down to the point where we had two 3PLs that we were kind of weighing off against each other. Um, and we decided just to pick the one that 
gave us the fastest timeframes. They could get our product in as very quickly. The setup effort was relatively low and, and what we wanted was speed to market. We have both taken an eye really time poor and kind of going back and forward trying to get stuff done is, is not something we want. So we ended up picking one that we're like, right, they'll be fast. That ended up becoming irrelevant because our stock was stuck in customs for six months. But you just don't know this at the time, right? And, and, and that's life. Yeah, absolutely. And was Dallas a deliberate choice in terms of geographic location or did that just come with your partner? Yeah, really, really good question. Uh, yeah, so um, and, and that kind of is a good link back to the comment around or a question around like choosing a 3PL um, in the U.S., um, there are very, very big, or one in particular, very big 3PL um, that basically has a presence in every single state. They are massive. Um, so they can basically do, like, delivery inside an hour um, to most metro addresses, like, nationwide in the US. Incredible. Um, and actually quite cost-effective in, in some respects, depending on your business. Um, or there's some, like the one we have chosen, which are centrally located, um, so they can kind of ship to east or west states and even Canada uh, relatively easily. And they're perhaps more cost-effective because they they don't have that presence and, and that's the way we have gone. Certainly, if, if we gain further traction in that market and we see an, an interest in, in faster dispatch times, then we would pursue it. And look, that's definitely a thing to think about with the US too because the e-commerce maturity is so much higher and Amazon is so strong. Like People often don't want to wait like two days for a parcel. To give it another example, one of our most common customer support inquiries is from people who selected a, a shipping option for standard airmail and, and this is spelled out on the site where like it'll take you two to five days um, and you'll get an email like a day later like, oh, where's my parcel? My parcel's lost. We're like, holy shit, your parcel hasn't even left the warehouse yet. Calm down, <laughs> check your tracking number. Whoa. And it's just, this, this, is, this is what you're dealing with because like the, the understanding is, is just so different. I mean, in Australia, like if something takes two or three weeks with Australian Post, you won't even hear from the customer. They're used to it. Whereas in the US, if it's like a day and it hasn't arrived, they're like kicking the door down. So there's there's so much to think about with that market, even in terms of resourcing customer support and the volume of inquiries you get, which is just exponential. Um, there's, there's so much to think about. I mean, I, I openly sit here now and I say we were like fundamentally not ready to launch in the US. Um, I, I'm glad we did because we, we're just kind of making it work. But I mean, we, we should have waited a year or two literally and, and, and tapped out this market first. But yeah, why wait? Just get in and do it. But do you think that some of the lessons and some of the pressure that you've been under in the US from a logistics and a customer expectation point of view will actually make you a better retailer in Australia? Yeah, definitely. That's that's um that's actually something we we've talked about over the the last few weeks. I mean, we we've we've had to lift our um lift our standard of service like a lot because it's had to respond to to the US and 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 you're right. I mean, translating that level of service back to an Australian market where there is less maturity, um that's going to be really well received here. So, I mean, there, there's there's definite there's definite value. You're spot on. Cool. You were one of the original or the early Amazon Launchpad recipients here in Australia. I think it was, was it two years ago you, you got the Launchpad? Uh, so we got, um, we got the, I think we were the second Launchpad round. Um, so yeah, they, they're obviously trying to ramp up their, um, presence in Australia. Um, so that, um, came through around mid last year. So, um, yeah, we're kind of eight, eight months ago now, seven, eight months ago. They didn't try and buy the business off you straight away? <laughs> I probably would have been interested, <laughs> depending on the offer. <laughs> um, no, I mean, and, and, and that was that was funny. Uh, like, 
I mean, it, it was sort of interesting because on paper, obviously, I mean, we could be perceived as a competitor, but I mean, now we've sort of partnered with them. We are we are selling um, through Amazon channels, and, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll we'll continue to do so. I mean, that that program is really good. Like they they structured it really well. It gives you some exposure to some really smart and experienced people, um, and and that was sort of more interest to us. I mean, obviously, there's there's a grant component there, and, and that grant is decent, but it vaporizes in relative to the cost of setting up a business like this. So that wasn't really part of it. We wanted just more exposure to other people that were doing similar stuff. And, and we've obviously had that through the other grant winners um, and also um, some of the subject matter experts that Amazon bring in. They, they run a whole kind of training course for winners of the program. And, and that was really insightful for us. And of course, I mean, you, you can't lose having a relationship with like the biggest book retailer in the world. And that's been invaluable for us. It's something, I mean, not that we can win the grant twice, but I would totally win it again if I could. Yeah, brilliant. I, I think it's a great thing. It's um, I found a couple of new businesses through that grant and um, yeah. there's some great stories out there. So it's a good thing to look into if, if anyone's starting out. Has there been anything, and, and obviously someone with your experience, you've seen a lot, has there been anything around online retailing of books that's really surprised you as apart from the the logistics and the distribution that's really surprised you about selling books online yeah there are there are several things in fact i could probably write a thesis on them (laughs) definitely the the first one is the point i mentioned before around like how weak the penetration is like in the kind of 30 to 40 year old demographic where i sit i mean the the young parents they're just not doing it i mean and, and if you looked on face value you would just assume that would be a huge market but it is just not so to, to put that in, in meaningful numbers, 96, 97% of our customer base is grandparents. It is that big. Um, the tiny balance left over is, is made up of kind of parents or, or uncles or aunts that are younger. So that, that has been a real surprise for us. It's not really a problem, but it's just changed the way we talk about the product because we, we need to appeal to a different audience. So I think, I think that's, um, that's item one. The, the second one, and this is a little bit random, is Finding packaging to sell picture books is really bloody hard. Um, so, mm. like, you, you actually can't get anything. Like, you, you have your traditional, like, plastic mailing satchels that you can't use because, um, I mean, if you drop them, the book gets bent or, like, the postman folds the book. And, and we had that early on whilst testing packaging. Customers don't like it when their book is bent inside out. That's probably pretty obvious, but we <laughs> we, we learned that as well. Um, so, yeah, we, we ended up actually, we, we've had um, our um, production partner in Shanghai, they've actually made custom packaging for us. We did a design and we've set that up. I mean, that was very expensive and I didn't really have the money, but it's sort of something we, we just had to do. My experience with, with other stores has been selling things that are pretty much close to impossible to damage in transit. So this is like surprisingly a, a fragile product, actually. I mean, if you drop it in the corner, it gets buckled and it's like someone's first grandchild, they'll close to kill you if the product isn't like pretty and perfect. So yeah, I, I have I have certainly been I've certainly been surprised by that. Uh, packaging is is a massively important part of the experience. They want to open it easily. It needs to look cool. The product needs to be safe and needs to be weatherproof. For inevitably, when a postman leaves it on the doormat, even though it's raining, and all of these things happen. Um, and yeah, many of them, most of them, right? We we were not prepared for. Um, I mean, I, I, tout, I tout myself as, as having been in this space for like nigh on two decades and I, I probably only knew about 5% of what I needed to, which is good. There's, there's always yeah. stuff to learn, right? <laughs> no, they're great lessons. Thank you so much for sharing them. We've got to finish up, but has there been any 
particular customer story that has resonated to you around the impact that your books have made? Yeah, several actually, and, and that's probably been the one of the sort of most rewarding parts of, of the business. I mean, we, we've connected with some really cool people. I mean, one that really resonates with me, um, there was a, a customer um, who's in a nursing home here in regional Victoria, and she is a great-grandmother and has like 20-something great 20-something great-grandchildren and grandchildren collectively, like massive cohort, like a bit of an e-commerce aficionado, um, was actually like giving us feedback on the website and the experience and the product. It was awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, they, they, these people are hard to find and we ended up, like, there's a blog about her on the website, actually, um, which, yeah, if, if people go through the blog and have a look, they'll be able to find that. Connecting with these people is is, is wonderful and, and also hilarious. It's amazing, um, yeah, when you find someone that's really passionate about your product, how much they'll sort of give and engage with you as a brand. Um, and, and that's the sort of stuff that's that's kind of worth its weight in, in gold, both emotionally as, as the business owner, but also like opportunistically in terms of how you can kind of market that and, and talk about it. So um, that was a, a really cool experience and, and we certainly anticipate more of those um, in the future. Brilliant, Stu. Thank you so much for sharing your story. As a fellow consultant, it's very inspiring to go out there and actually create something rather than tell people how to do things. <laughs> um, and um, love what you're doing around uh, shaking up the children's children's books industry as well. So congratulations. I'm sure there's huge things ahead. How can people get in touch with you or learn more about Ethical? Uh, so you can go um, straight onto the website, um, which I mean, if you Google Ethical, E-T-H-I-C-O-L, you'll find us or it's just ethical.com. Uh, that'll take you to the, the US store. I mean, all feel free to, to hunt me down on, on LinkedIn and, and connect. I'm always happy to, to chat to people and yeah, hear, hear your ideas or thoughts. I mean, to that end, also welcome feedback on, on the website, particularly bad. Um, if something looks bad or you don't like it, hey, we, we want to hear about it all the time. So uh, by all means, um, shoot all your thoughts through. Love that stuff. That's a very dangerous proposition to our listeners. I'm sure there's plenty of, <laughs> plenty of good thoughts out there. Right, but no, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Stu. Um, we'll uh, look forward to seeing this expand even further. Awesome. Keep in touch. Thank you. As a corporate escapee and a consultant these days, I love how Stu was able to use his skills to create a business that seems a million miles away from where he's traditionally been operating. But you can see how the thinking actually connects to his real world. One piece that really caught me was that they modeled up multiple P&Ls in the early days to focus on variable scenarios and different operating models. While the end result, 12 months later, doesn't actually represent the original model chosen, I'm sure that doing this work upfront allowed Stu and the team to change direction quickly because they'd already modelled the assumptions and the flow on impacts. It's a great exercise to do from the outset. All right, I'm off to pen 500 words to see what kind of kid's book I can come up with. No doubt it's going to be another fart book that's not really needed by anyone. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops, as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, 
which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com.au forward slash high five. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart.